Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in the 1760s, Massachusetts colonists began pushing back against the ever-tightening grip of British rule. The boiling tension erupted in violent episodes, few more shocking than the Boston Massacre in 1770, when five colonists, including black sailor Crispus Attucks, were gunned down by British militia. Increasing taxation on goods from papers and publications to tea, helped spark a secret movement for independence. Three years after the Boston Massacre, protesters publicly rejected the taxes on tea by dumping crates of tea from the British East India Company in the Boston Harbor. This reenactment is a dramatization of that moment on December 16, 1773. This tea is legitimate cargo shipped here by the East India Company, which the law plainly states we are loaded and taxed. Legitimate cargo! Next week, Boston observes the 250th anniversary of what became known as the Boston Tea Party. Leading up to the event, museums, schools, and historical organizations across the state have come together to celebrate the significance of this historically pivotal event. Later in the show, new Advent calendars that go way beyond the traditional daily chocolates, a lesser-known French bubbly that's easier on your holiday shopping wallet, and new local Chinese restaurants exciting Boston foodies. So exactly the same grapes as um, uh, fancy, unattainable French champagne is made from at a fraction of the price. It's our Food and Wine Roundtable, the Holiday Edition. But first, joining me now, Benjamin Karp, Brooklyn College history professor and author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Also with me, Evan O'Brien, creative manager at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. Hello, Evan. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm glad to have you. And Angelica Oswald, a researcher at American Ancestors, helping with the Boston Tea Party Descendants Program. Welcome, Angelica. Hi there. Happy to be here. Glad to have all of you. Well, um, Professor Karp, I'm going to start with you, Professor Karp, Ben, uh, because I want to, again, put into context just uh, where the Boston Tea Party fits within this sort of struggle between the colonists and and Britain, Um, as I've mentioned it leading into this conversation. But how intense was it? What was happening right before the Tea Party happened? Oh, sure. I mean, the Boston Tea Party doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's weeks of tension, right? As the ships arrive, and even before the ships arrive, uh, Bostonians try to pressure the merchants who have been appointed to receive the tea. They try to pressure the ship owners and the ship captains, and they try to pressure customs officials and the governor. And the goal is really to send the tea back to London. Uh, and this was technically illegal, but you know, but the Bostonians think this will be the best way out of the problem. We don't want the tea to land, 
And so if if someone will just agree to ship it back, then maybe we can, you know, uh, no, you know, not have to have some kind of dramatic protest. Uh, but because people keep telling them, no, uh, this is what leads to the Tea Party ultimately. So there's a couple things that I don't think I realized. First of all, that the British East India Company had a surplus of tea and nobody wanted it. So they just decided to make the colonists pay for it because they couldn't get rid of it. Right. It's it's not quite that nobody wanted it. Everybody wanted tea. But the East, the British East India Company has competitors. It's not supposed to because it's supposed to have a British monopoly. Uh, but there are other European trading companies who are more than willing to make uh, tea available to British consumers and to English speaking American consumers. One other thing I didn't know, New York and Philadelphia said, we're not going to let you land here with that tea. <laughs> so Boston, in some ways, was coming up late to the party because they'd already said, don't bring it here. Yeah, I mean, the, the timing is a little bit tricky because the tea doesn't actually even get to New York until 1774 <laughs> because of, uh, you know, accidents <laughs> on the high seas. Uh, but yeah, the tea was being shipped to New York, to Philadelphia, to Charleston. Uh, and in none of those cities is there as dramatic an event as what happens in Boston. Okay. Uh, now over to you, Evan. Um, 250 years is a drop in the bucket for most historians, but for us, <laughs> that's a long time. And it's really, I think, so exciting to look back on something 250 years ago and realize that it has meaning now. Um, and by the way, you every 15 minutes in the harbor, you're reenacting what happened. Um, talk about just the excitement about bringing a more attention to, to this event. That's right. We have an amazing opportunity as a city, as a commonwealth, and as a nation to mark this 250th anniversary of this iconic moment in American history. And I think we have a great opportunity to make sure that we're telling the story in a way that is as accessible um, to everyone uh, from around the world so they can understand uh, the lead up to the Boston Tea Party, the events that occurred during that infamous night, and also the lasting legacy ideas of representation in your government and the ideas of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. These are the central themes along the story of the Boston Tea Party that are absolutely still applicable in a modern sense today. So, Angelica, uh, you're with uh, a group that is investigating, vetting actually people who claim that their ancestors were members of that group um, who dumped the tea in the harbor. They were known as the Sons of Liberty. Um, and that's a very interesting task right now. So we're going to get back to who these people were and how they how they played out their role that night. But for this moment, um, what's involved in trying to connect that past with this current? So that's, I mean, it's hard to do, right? Um, right now, the first step is to make a list of who we are accepting as participants. Um, and that's using already published research. A lot of uh, Dr. Karp's work as well is what we're relying on to try and vet um, the participants themselves. Um, the work itself, depending on where the people lived, uh, it's sometimes easy, it's sometimes hard. We have a few people where we can't find descendants at all. Um, there's, you know, no record of children, but for others, you know, we know that they've had 17 kids. And then that's a whole task of finding who they married, when they died, where they lived. Um, it's a long process and we are just doing the first generation. Um, those who apply have to connect the rest um, and then prove that they are connected to whoever we found is a participant or who we are saying is a participant. Um, so it is a difficult task and 
it takes quite a bit. Has the 250th anniversary sparked more interest from people who believe that they are connected? Oh, absolutely. We get a ton of questions now. Uh, people come to us with stories and, you know, it's, that's where it gets hard. Um, a lot of people want to have that history, want to have that story. But if you don't have anything that we're counting as proof or close to it. Which would um, be what? So right now we are using people listed in Dr. Karp's book um, as vetted because he did a fantastic job uh, researching and talking about these people. Um, we are using tea leaves, which is a little bit iffy, um, but that was at least recorded stories at the time. Uh, the only thing that we are changing there is if we find evidence proving otherwise, then we'll remove them from the list. Or if anybody else has contemporary resources uh, before 1853, uh, we'll include that. Like if you come to us with a family letter before that, um, that's never been shared before. Or if you find a newspaper article that we've never seen before, before 1853, we'll count that as uh, evidence. Let me just circle back to tea leaves. What, what Do you mean actual tea leaves? Like, <laughs> um, So Francis Drake's Tea Leaves um, is a book that was published um, back in the eight, late 1800s. Um, and it is a series of documents, letters, uh, and biographical sketches or you know, short little descriptions of people who were said to participate. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, you know, because that was published later, there are some people who we, I mean, we found one guy who was in the book, um, but he ended up dying 10 years before the tea party even happened. So we discounted him as a participant. We think he was confused with a family member. All right. So what we have is a good sense of what the tension was leading up to the Boston Tea Party event. Um, we know that there were bigger issues involved with this um, having to do with representation, which we're about to dive in now. And um, what's difficult about it is that these were ordinary folks who were trying to be anonymous. So trying to identify who they are, lo these many years later, is a difficult task. So back to you, uh, Benjamin Karp. Three ships in the harbor, three teams of men um, that we don't know who they are. Leading up to it, there was a lot of discussion happening among some people pushing for independence. Um, here's another reenactment that I think is will be helpful for our listeners. This is from the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. This is of a town meeting at the Old South Meeting House um, talking about uh, dumping the tea. Gentlemen. The issue here today is much greater than this three pence tax. We must demand our right to representation. Yeah. Because the colonies have no representatives in Parliament, these duties are an infringement of our natural and constitutional rights. Yeah. We must defend our right to representation. All right, uh, Ben. So. When they say we must defend our right to representation, what are they talking about? Sure. I mean, the American colonies do not have direct representatives in parliament. They do have lobbyists that can lean on representatives in parliament, but technically the American colonists have no representation. They do have representation in their own local legislatures uh, and they, you know, and so they you know, those local legislatures raised taxes on them. They paid taxes. Nobody likes paying taxes, but they at least felt, okay, we have some sort of consent in, uh, you know, in, in how we're governed and taxed in that way. 
So all of a sudden, the colonists, since the Stamp Act of 1765, have begun raising the issue of, you know, is it really fair for Parliament to levy direct taxes on us for the purposes of raising revenue? Now, Parliament thought this was totally reasonable, right? Uh, Great Britain had just fought a war on behalf of the American colonies. They had debts from that war. They have continuing troop commitments in what's now the, the Midwest. So they thought it was totally reasonable to help, you know, to ask the Americans to help pay for the British Empire. But the Americans do not feel that way. And by the way, wh- wh- who the people you're referring to as Americans are not yet officially Americans. They're colonists. They're a group. Yes, so just to be clear so that people understand that this was actually all this stuff is happening before we became America. So to speak. Right. Well, yes, the, yeah. North American yeah. colonists, yeah. Right, whatever we want to call them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just to just. Because that was the whole point. So here are these people saying there is a, a number, a growing number of people saying we should not be ruled by Britain if they're going to tax us and we don't have any say about it. We should be our own country, um, and let's just get rid of them. This was revolutionary, by the way, to be saying this stuff out loud. And in fact, a lot of people did not do it. A name I want to introduce in this conversation is Samuel Adams, who most of the founders will agree was really the central um, instigator uh, and pusher uh, to move toward the revolution. He was also somebody who had been fomenting all of the the interests of people who thought there should these colonies should be independent of Britain. Now, Ben, maybe you can say yes or no, but I've read that he said at that meeting that we just heard, or one like it, and there were many meetings about you know, this tea dumping or what we should do to res- or what they should do to respond, that he stood up and said, this meeting can do nothing more to save the country, which some historians believe was a signal to the Sons of Liberty. That's the group that actually carried out the tea dumping who are waiting outside. Is that true? What do you say? I mean, it's hard to say whether it was a, a signal, you know, or I mean, it may be that the whole thing was prearranged and they didn't even need a signal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Samuel Adams and the other principal leaders of Boston, they very ostentatiously kind of stay behind in the Old South Meeting House at the head of the meeting. And they say, no, no, stay, listen, we still have more things to say. But meanwhile, the you know a, a group of men come into the gallery dressed in Indian disguises. They say, all right, hurrah for Griffin's Wharf. We're going to, you know, we're going to make, tea, you know, uh, make Boston Harbor into a cup of tea for the fish, you know. And so they begin marching down to Griffin's Wharf. Most of the crowd seems to follow them down to Griffin's Wharf, but the leaders like Samuel Adams stay behind. They basically have plausible deniability about whether they had anything to do with it. Uh, but it's really unclear, right? I, I mean, th- this was an illegal act. People didn't take notes about who was uh, pulling the strings or, uh, you know, or or coordinating these things behind the scenes. Clearly, the Tea Party had some kind of prior planning, but whether Samuel Adams was directly involved, it's hard to say. I mean, he was clearly involved in the resistance to uh, to the landing of the tea as a member of the Boston Committee of Correspondence, but uh, but again, it's not it's not entirely clear what Adams himself actually did. And um, I just want to add that a wonderful book by Stacy Schiff called "The Revolutionary Samuel Adams" um, makes it clear that he himself did not keep his records. He didn't want to keep the records deliberately. So some of this is still up to speculation because we don't know. We just know that he had a heavy hand behind the scenes. Uh, now, moving over to you, Evan O'Brien, um, at the Boston Tea Party Museum, I want to dive into this whole dressing as Indians. Uh, some people have described it like they kind of sort of dressed as in. They knew they weren't really 
in full dress, but nevertheless, that's what they chose to do. So why? The Native American disguises uh, were utilized in other protests leading up to the Boston Tea Party. Long story short, um, it is believed that this American Indian, this indigenous individual, came to sort of visually represent this concept of America. And as both you and Dr. Karp have mentioned, you know, independence was not necessarily the topic du jour in 1773. That would come a bit later. But it was about this idea of governing themselves. Well before the Boston Tea Party, the people of Massachusetts looked at themselves as not separate from England, certainly, but had the ability to govern their own affairs. Um, and so this this representation of this indigenous individual began to percolate in some of the imagery of the time. There are other instances of other protests of people loosely in Native American garb making an appearance. Certainly at the time of the Boston Tea Party, um, there were no indigenous people that we're aware of that actually participated in the destruction of the tea, nor did the Sons of Liberty attempt to, quote-unquote, frame the Native American peoples as the perpetrators of this event. No one would have expected uh, indigenous people to be destroying the tea. Everyone sort of knew who it was. But this symbolic idea of this indigenous person governing themselves was paramount at the time. What we think they likely would have worn is also very unlike anything that you might find in an internet image search. Uh, if you were to go online right now and type in the Boston Tea Party, you'd find a wide variety of different quote-unquote costumes and representations of the Boston Tea Party. Some completely far afield, uh, some potentially a bit more accurate. What we do believe they wore was likely uh, blankets and cloaks to disguise their silhouette. It was also a very cold December night. It had been raining 24 hours before. We all know what Boston can be like in a dreary <laughs> December evening. Um, <clears throat> they likely darkened their faces with soot and coal dust. Again, as Dr. Karp has already illustrated, this was an illegal act, and concealing their identities was paramount at this point. To my knowledge, there are no first-person accounts that actually mention the word feathers. So to be honest, we're not entirely certain if they wore quote-unquote headdresses or not. But what I can say is many of the images and the artwork that represent this moment in American history were actually drawn and created at an entirely different chapter in Americans' timeline. So these almost full Native American headdresses uh, that you might see at the time of westward expansion certainly would not have likely been what they would have worn on December 16, 1773. Okay, so Ben, why? Because uh, we recognize that now as appropriation, whether or not they intended uh, to suggest, as Evan had, that you know we're talking about about native to this land and and therefore we're connected to that um you know it's insulting for the first nation people so what was that about yeah i mean yeah as, as evan said there's so many meanings to it i mean i think that there is a, a mix on the one hand they admire actual native people for their fearsomeness uh, and for their independence as as evan said you know as, as as people who are not to be messed with right and so whites are trying to kind of appropriate that identity for themselves. I mean, I th so I think some of it was was that right. Like we we want to adopt this identity, but at the same time, the Tea Partiers are saying, "But you you never forget that it's a disguise. You still remember that we are white people underneath." Uh, really, in some ways, I think that the disguises were meant to suggest we want to have the both best of both worlds. We want to show that we are civilized and descended from Europeans, 
but we also want to show that we are free and not to be trifled with like Native Americans. They want to say we are something new as American colonists. We are Americans. We are not Europeans and we are not Native. Uh, so it's this this sort of in-between thing. But again, as Evan said, no, nobody, the disguises weren't even, you, you know, concealing their identities. I mean, Boston is a town of 16,000 people and only a quarter of them were adult men, uh, probably fewer than that. So everybody knew who these guys were. You knew how your cousin walked or your neighbor carried himself. Uh, but And the disguises are really meant to suggest these are supposed to be people outside Boston. If anyone asks, you don't know who they were. Right. Even though there's crowds lining the wharves and everybody's watching this. Uh, and, and so it is meant to it is meant to suggest to the British authorities, don't blame Boston. This is a bunch of outsiders who came in and did this, even though everyone knows that that's a complete fiction. And the other thing to underscore is that they wanted to be clear that these were ordinary folks, not, quote unquote, leadership of, you know, of the colonies, um, you know, folks that might be prominent, hence, you know, Samuel Adams certainly making himself a, a, a good alibi, but but other names that might have come up at the time who might have been considered leaders, um, either by uh, by custom or in some other more formal role. Those were not the people who were dumping the tea. These were just your regular folk. I actually think Boston has many leaders. Of course, there are people who are, you know, Harvard graduates and, and elites like Samuel Adams, but there were also local neighborhood leaders who uh, ordinary working class people would have known uh, in a more intimate way and respected. And so you have guys who were kind of the leaders of the crew um, who were leaders in a fashion. They just weren't the uppermost leaders. Uh, and so I think there, you know, this is something we often don't understand about the revolutionary era is that there were lower level leaders, right, Com community members, the kind of people who might eventually become lieutenants and captains in the Continental Army rather than delegates to the Continental Congress. Right. Uh, and so there was uh, there was leadership and, and that, that local leadership is something that the Bostonians would have really respected. OK, now, one or both of you, Evan and uh, Benjamin, made the point that um, there was a huge enslaved community who were also involved. I'd never heard this. Please explain. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, in my book, I don't suggest necessarily that any enslaved people were participants in the Boston Tea Party. But at the end of the book, I do talk about the relationship between slavery and the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. Um, 1773 was actually a really big year for agitating against slavery. It's the year when Philip Phyllis Wheatley publishes her book of poetry. Harvard students are debating whether to abolish slavery. Uh, black petitioners are coming forward suggesting that, uh, that we ought to end the slave trade. There's a lot of agitation against slavery in Boston in 1773. And one of the things that I actually argue is that Boston, the Boston Tea Party sort of puts a stop to the anti-slavery movement, because after the Boston Tea Party and after the Coercive Acts, things get so serious you know, and John Adams and Samuel Adams are down at the Continental Congress saying, hey, we want to try and have a union with South Carolina and Virginia enslavers. Maybe we shouldn't talk so loudly about our anti-slavery views or it'll destroy any potential for an American union. So in a, in a weird way, I think the Boston Tea Party interferes with a growing movement within Massachusetts to do away with slavery. And Massachusetts does do away with slavery during the Revolutionary War, but they sort of do it quietly. Um, and the people of Massachusetts do not say come to the Constitutional Convention and say, hey, you know, we ought to be a, an American nation without slavery because they knew that that was something that the Southerners never would have accepted. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm with Benjamin Karp, 
Brooklyn College history professor and author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Evan O'Brien, creative manager at the Boston Tea Party, Ships and Museum, and Angelica Oswald, a researcher at American Ancestors, helping with the Boston Tea Party Descendants Program. We're discussing the upcoming 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. All right, so afterwards, so they go, the, the three ships in the harbor, the three teams of men, the local leaders, the poorly disguised local leaders dump the tea, and then, you know, all hell breaks loose afterwards. Um, here's a clip from the History Channel series, Sons of Liberty, that's the group that dumped the tea, about Parliament's reaction, that would be the British, to the dumping of the tea. The people of Boston are merely reacting to a policy in which they are forced to purchase... Nobody is forcing the colonists to behave in this way. They seem quite content subverting the king's authority of their own accord. They are simply defending their natural rights as Englishmen. Englishmen? (laughs) (laughs) These colonists are committing treason. They are thugs and outlaws, the sons of tyranny. They should be beaten into submission. So that increases the tension, as we know. And then the next thing um, coming down the pike three years after um, is um, the Lexington and Concord. I mean, we're now now into the Revolutionary War. Um, Let's talk about the importance, uh, the significance of the Tea Party to the Revolutionary War. Could it have happened? I mean, it would have happened probably at some point. But was this the engine that pushed it faster? I mean, I don't think it's the Tea Party, but it's definitely Britain's reaction to the Tea Party that becomes the engine, uh, right? The passage of the Coercive Act, the Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, and the Quartering Act, those plus the Quebec Act, uh, you know, were meant, some of them were meant to single out Boston and Massachusetts as punishment, but this idea backfires. And instead, uh, people uh, throughout the 13 colonies begin rallying around Boston and Massachusetts and saying, hey, if Parliament can levy such a harsh punishment on them, they could levy such a harsh punishment on all of us. And so they begin sending delegates to the Second Continental Congress. They begin drilling the militia, you know, in the in the fall of 1774. Things really start to get set up for uh, for for the breaking out of the conflict in April of 1775. So, Evan. Are people now uh, recognizing um, even more what the without representation means? Does that have a resonance now, 250 years later, that it might not even have had at the time as, as intensely as we're thinking about these issues in a more global way? Sure. I certainly think so. I mean, you look at the news today, and I think what you walk away from when you understand history of the time period, whether it was 1773 or 2023, Life is complex. Government is complex. The ideas of elections and representation and your place in your own government and your own community is complex and, consequ- and, and complicated. So it was complicated in 1773, and life still has those same complexities in 2023. I think there's this intrinsic need. Um, it, it's always been there, but it might be amplified in today's society of how do I fit in? Is my government even listening to me? Even though I participate in civic engagement, I vote, I'm involved, does that vote matter? Do I feel as though my voice is being heard at the table? And I think it's too easy to generalize events like the Boston Tea Party um, to make it fit your corner of your idea. But I think there's certainly 
this idea of inspiration from events like the Boston Tea Party to remind ourselves that the the human element, you know, is complicated and complex, and there are a myriad of opinions, different voices at the table, but each voice deserves to be heard. And I think in today's society and looking at inspiration from an event like the Boston Tea Party, I think that's what we walk away from. So, Angelica, as you're vetting uh, the people who are claiming a relationship to the people, those sons of liberty who dump the tea, is it your sense that they have a, they know it's historic, obviously that's a historic connection, uh, but that they have a sense of empowerment because these were the ordinary folks, A, um, and B, while they were the ordinary folks, they really were the revolutionaries of their time. Do you have a sense that the folks who are claiming that um, connection are really also understanding the place in history of their potential uh, uh, ancestors? I definitely think so. I mean, everyone, I think, likes to have something that they can reflect on in their family that they're either proud of or excited to find out. And I feel like when people, I mean, a lot of these families have shared these stories for decades. Um, so some people might have grown up knowing, uh, but there are definitely some people who are like, okay, wait, I had family in Boston uh, and I've never thought about that connection, who can look back and see, okay, maybe they were involved. Um, and I mean, one of the things of the program that we're doing is we're also counting people. Um, you can apply as uh, as like an eyewitness, because I mean, oh, even wow. if you weren't participating in the throwing of the tea, I mean, if you lived in Boston at that time, you were reading the letters, you were reading the pamphlets, the newspapers. I do think people, you know, are excited to find out or are proud to know that their ancestors were involved in such a revolutionary events of the time. So American Ancestors is recognizing something that I think has become more common today, and that is that was a that these events were actually communal in nature, very much so. So that the context of those people who observed and can you know prove that they were there to observe it is just as important as actually the event taking place because it's all of a piece. That's what you're saying. Yeah, and I mean, let's say you saw someone that you know, participating, you didn't turn them in, you know, that everyone was like a team, they were together, they were keeping each other safe from prison, like, you know, no one went to prison for this. It was one of those things where even if you knew your neighbor participated, you kept quiet. Um, Evan, what would you, as everybody celebrating them, December 16th kicks off all of this, um, you know, it just uh, comes to an exciting point. What is the thing that you either want people to definitely take away from from the observance of this or you want to clear up so i think december 16th 2023 is an opportunity to come and celebrate our history celebrate boston um you know this event and this commemoration is actually a partnership between two dozen different organizations all talking about their own chapter in this important story and communicating that history to general public and audiences from around the world. We're expecting a huge influx of people traveling to Boston for this, and it's an opportunity for our city, our community, and our commonwealth to really shine uh, as one of the main kickoffs to all of the upcoming 250th anniversaries leading up to 2026. So we have this great opportunity to celebrate our, that rich history. I think in terms of myths to clean up. 
I know we did touch on one big one already, which is the uh, indigenous disguises that were, you know, involved. I think also to me personally, um, I think Dr. Karp's point a little while ago about leadership within the community is spot on. And I love this idea that, you know, coopers and shoemakers like George Robert Twelves Hughes, um, you know, house rights, wallpaperers, painters, these people of what we would consider today to be ordinary trades did do that extraordinary thing. And they are worthy of our recognition. They're worthy of that conversation and use that conversation as an opportunity to talk about other people who may have not been at that table during that time, like Phyllis Wheatley, who we referenced earlier, and leveraging this important anniversary to make sure that we communicate this history in an accessible way so that everyone feels involved and everyone can commemorate this important event in our history. Okay. Last word from you, Ben. Um, You wrote the book on the Boston Tea Party. What is it that uh, you want to make sure you clear up if there is a myth that that you find irritating. Um, And also, what do you want to make sure that people get um, as they observe this 250th anniversary? Yeah, I mean, there's so many minor myths that I like to puncture, (laughs) but my answer to both your questions is the same. Uh, And it's that the Boston Tea Party really belongs to all of us. I mean, we have this notion that the revolutionary era maybe only belongs to to one side, you know, or another. But I think whether you are left, right, or center, you can find meaning in the Boston Tea Party and that a, a better understanding can lead us to having a kind of shared ownership of um, of using this event for inspiration, whether we want to think of it as an act of civil disobedience or whether we just want to think of it as a, a, an important moment in the origins of uh, of the United States, uh, you know, or or thinking of it as a, as a moment of global significance, right? Uh, uh, you know, the the Boston Tea Party is a memory that I think I would prefer to see shared widely rather than kind of uh, taken on by only one group or another. Well, thank you all for joining me. This is a great conversation. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was great speaking with you all. Thanks. Benjamin Karp is Brooklyn College history professor and author of Defiance of the Patriots, the Boston Tea Party, and the Making of America. Evan O'Brien is the creative manager at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. And Angelica Oswald is a researcher at American Ancestors, helping with the Boston Tea Party Descendants Program. Coming up, the newest versions of a favorite American Christmas tradition are, well, untraditional. This season's Advent calendars offer more than chocolates, frozen food, and canned wine, anyone? Plus, a lesser-known French bubbly perfect for toasting in the new year. It's our Food and Wine Roundtable, the holiday edition. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 